or good afternoon, or good evening, or maybe good night. Wherever you are, hello again and welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. It is our weekly podcast, our virtual church classroom, presented to you by me, Pastor Dan and my daughter Bethany on behalf of Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. And once again, we have gathered to study God's word with the hope of knowing God's heart and mind with all of our hearts and minds. We do this each week as a supplement to your life with a local church. And I say this every week because it's so important that you are a part of a regular uh, meeting fellowship. You know, the Bible says that you should not go out of the habit of meeting regularly with one another. It is because we sharpen each other in the faith journey. And it is through our dialogue and through our shared journey that we are truly the body of Christ. It would be as though some part of your body thought that it could somehow exist without being attached to the rest of the body. So it's really important that you join in the fellowship of the believers. Find a local church, be a part of it. I know that many churches don't feel like the right fit to you, but don't give up looking for a group of people with whom you can worship and study God's word and pray. As always, we begin our worship together with the uh, fellowship of the believers. A fellowship's a church word that gets overused, and it's probably a bit of a turnoff to a lot of people, and uh, I, I regret that. But uh, what I really mean by that is, is that we are in a family or a relationship together that is enhanced through the uh, sharing of worship and prayer. And so for that reason, we always begin our time together with acts of love for God and each other before we begin to learn, and then we're equipped for leading. You see, if you humble yourself before God and then humble yourself to learn something, believing that you don't know everything, that's when you're ready to lead. So that's why we always start with loving and then learning and then leading. Our psalm reading this week is Psalm 10. Psalm 10, and uh, after we study that a little bit and read it together, we'll have some music and prayer. So join me now, if you will, by reading from your Bible from Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. 
His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness. That would not otherwise be found out. The Lord King, the Lord is King ever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to them cry, defending the faithless, the fatherless, and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never strike terror in their hearts. Today we come knowing that there are those who really believe that you're of no particular consequence. They come in and out of our lives. They afflict and affect us in so many ways that it's difficult for us to name them all. In some ways we don't even know how much they are influential in the difficulties of our lives. But you're bigger than all of that. You are more than that, Lord, and that's why... When we find ourselves suffering from the evil that is sort of uh, provoked and, and uh, enraged and inflamed by Satan, we still have faith in you. We still have confidence in your ever-faithful presence and love. We are sure, Lord, that you are there for us and that you abide in every way. Uh, in our lives and that you in the end will of course be victorious over it all you've already beaten the head satan and it is simply a residual battleground where god 
you have won the victory and evil is no longer fed by this constant leadership as much as it is enticed and teased and and uh, the, the battle is still on but there's a difference there's a total difference because the war has already been lost by the enemy and perhaps because of that the enemy is all the more vicious and so God we pray for each other in our times of difficulty we pray that when the world is evil and ugly and nasty to us when terrible things happen because of the fall and sin and death that we would keep in mind that the war is won and that we're simply seeing the battles that will go on until you have come in and mopped everything up and finished it once and for all and so we look for you that day we cry abba father come quickly lord maranatha and we pray that not so soon that we can't lead one more into your grace and so god we pray for our nation we pray for the world we pray for our native land here in indiana and the places where our listeners live we pray for our families and our homes and our churches we pray for each other we lift it all into your hands and leave it there in the sure and certain hope of your love and grace. And we do all of this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, this week we are ready to carry on with our study of the book of Revelation. The Revelation, the Revelation, the Apocalypto, it means the uh, revealing. And who's being revealed? Well, God. And who's doing the revealing? It's Jesus. In fact, it's God revealing something to Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 1 and the first few verses. And it says, this is the revelation revealed to the Son by the Father. And so it's God's gift to the Son. And the idea is, is that God is happy and delighted to share information to his Son so that his Son can share with all of his friends. Think about that, po uh, that story of the prodigal son. Remember the father threw a big party for his uh, son who returned, and the other son said, hey, dad, you know, what's up? I mean, you never throw a party for me. And the dad says, look, you've always been with me, but this one who was lost has come back. And the introduction to Revelation is kind of the same thing. It's, 
It's the Father saying to the Son, you're with me. But those who aren't quite here yet, you love them so much, I'm going to take care of them too. And here's how I'm going to do it. So there's my introduction to the Revelation. And now here I want to introduce my daughter Bethany, who is with me across the cyberspace a few hours away and ready to help us talk about the next episode here, which is, let's see, uh, I got my numbering set up right on the podcast now. And uh, Bethany, tell them what episode this is, because I forgot. Um, I don't know. Uh-oh. Well. Um, let me just open my podcast app. Yeah. Oh, by the way, that's Bethany over there on the other side Hi, of guys, the computer this is screen. Hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we are, uh, it's so funny, you know, because I put a lot of work into these podcasts and then I forget the most basic thing. Like, um, what number is this anyway? According to my podcast feed, the last one was number eight. So this would be episode nine. Episode nine of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, The Revelation. And uh, this would be Bethany Sinkhorn, my beautiful daughter, on the other side of the computer screen. And we are going to start talking about chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. Verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 7. The letter to the church in Philadelphia. So, Bethany, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the church in Philadelphia. And I sure hope you're not going to talk about the one in Pennsylvania. Well, there's probably more than one church there. True. So. True. Yeah. And that's okay. not that's not where the one if by land and two if by sea was. That's Boston, right? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to see if <laughs> I just wanted to see if you were on a sharp edge this time. As always, you're on it. Okay. I mean, I don't know that I'm super sharp tonight, but well, don't you, even play with me when it comes to Revolutionary War history. You. <laughs> yeah. Really. And, and and that's according to real history, as well as, you know, national treasure movies and things like that, right? So And all the other good ones. And all yeah. the other good ones. You just got watch, got done watching the John Adams. I'm um, not quite finished. I haven't finished the last okay. couple of them. I really liked that one. I thought it was very I good. love that one. And, I'm uh, probably going to have to watch it more than once. Yeah, yeah, that was so. really good. At Abigail, she's pretty awesome, too. Yes, she is. I want to be, I want to be Abigail Adams, I think. Yeah. She's really cool. All anyway, right. the- yeah. So here we go. The wrong Philadelphia. I said, let's not go to the wrong Philadelphia. And who took us there? You know me. Well, that's okay. All right. So tell us about the church in Philadelphia. What history have you extracted from your vast knowledge? <laughs> so and extensive for, research. For starters, um. Obvious. So, so name meaning is one that I think most people are probably going to know this time, um, because the meaning of Philadelphia is the city of him who loves his brother. But I found out where that comes from, and it's actually really delightful. I think. Um, so the city was named after a one of the kings of Pergamum's brother. His brother's who, name was Phil. No, 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 no. Oh. His brother's name was like Adalus. Okay, well, you know. But in, And so this king didn't have an heir. So his brother was going to be his successor. And his brother nicknamed him Philadelphus because they loved each other so much. Like, 
Um, his brother was under all kinds of pressure to cave toward more Roman rule, but Attalus loved his brother, the King of Pergamum so much that even though like he was under all this pressure, he was like, nah, man, my brother, that's where it's at. I'm loyal to him. And so his brother nicknamed him Philadelphus because of that. And that's where the whole city of brotherly love thing comes from. It's literally two brothers who were super loyal and loving to each other, which I think is delightful. It is. And, and the little bit of research that I did that uh, is probably far surpassed by yours, um, that that Philadelphia, so the, so the name Philadelphia really doesn't mean brotherly love. If you take the words and break them down to what they actually mean, that's not what they say. But mm-hmm. that's the lore of the name, right? Yeah. That, that's the, so, so the name, um, you know, really represents the brother's love for each other. And that's where it gets the nickname brotherly love. So I, I think yeah. that's really interesting. You know, I don't know that it matters that much, but it may it as nice. we get along the way with this letter. And it's just nice to, to hear that, like, these two guys just really loved each other. And it's a legacy that's like, that's a humongously long legacy. True. So, and uh, uh, and this letter to this church looks like, you know, a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Philadelphia is on the Cogamus River, um, and it's about 27 miles from Sardis, which was the last one that we heard from. Um, it, it's an inland city. Uh, it's in a river valley, a very fertile river valley, and it's about 80 miles east of Smyrna, um, which is important because Philadelphia was on a junction of an east-west highway that terminated in Smyrna. So a lot of people going to Smyrna were traveling through Philadelphia, um, and it was a pretty prosperous trading center. Um, it was, it, it had, a, like, part of the valley had a very, very fertile land that was um, fertile because of volcanic ash, um, because it's one side of the city has, like, all these volcanic cliffs, um, and the ash made the ground really fertile for grape growing. Uh, yeah. I know where so, you're going uh, with this. Wine was really, really popular. And actually, Virgil, who I think I mentioned before, Virgil's like the, the Roman version of Homer, mm-hmm. um, which sounds terrible because he's a person, so he's not a version, but he's like the Roman equivalent. I, I get what you mean. They're, they're types. Um, yeah. And, and he actually, like, basically wrote the Roman version of the Iliad and a couple of, like, other things. And um, he wrote the Aeneid. Um, but he wrote about the Philadelphia wine because he, like, he thought it was so great and liked it so much. And I don't know what, what liked it so much means. Maybe, you know, he overindulged or what. But Virgil liked Philadelphia's wine and grapes. And there's um, a certain god of wine. Yes. And that guy, Dionysus, who I've talked about before, he's the party god. Um, <laughs> Seems like they should have called him Wynysus, but anyway, go on. Uh, yeah. Um, so Philadelphia ended up being a center for Dionysus worship because, you know, grape-growing wine just made sense. They decided that he must really like Philadelphia because there was fertile land for growing grapes. Um, it was at one point called Little Athens, 
because it was very prosperous and it had lots of temples and festivals. So um, even though it gets a really awesome report card, which we'll find out, it still had quite a bit of pagan worship going on too. Mm-hmm. Um, it was its main source of trade was leather goods and red silk. And the Turkish name of the city is Al-Sahir or some, something like that, uh, which means red city. So the assumption is, is that it, it, it was named red city because of this particular red silk that it, um, was kind of famous for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I thought this was interesting. Um, the earthquake that we talked about with Sardis, right? That earthquake also majorly impacted uh, Philadelphia because it wasn't. I mean, it's only twenty-seven miles from Sardis. So if an earthquake that's big enough to level a city hits, it's probably going to impact cities around it. Um, but whereas Sardis took care of itself and rebuilt itself because it was very, very prosperous, Philadelphia was not as prosperous and couldn't afford to rebuild itself. So the Roman emperor, several Roman emperors in a row for several years relieved it of its taxation. So, so it, that they in could, effect, uh, it's like the president declaring it a disaster area, which releases all kinds of federal aid. Yes. Yeah. And it was several emperors in a row that continued that because it took the city a long time to get back to where it was. Um, and I mentioned the volcanic cliffs. There were a lot of earthquakes that impacted Philadelphia through the years because of the volcanoes right behind it. Um, uh, it's kind of a timely example. We've got a lot of I that know. going on now. Yeah. Yeah. There was another eruption, I think. The old Pacific Rim is really starting to rattle and shake. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, and so then also. The back when we were talking about Smyrna several weeks ago, um, one of the things that I mentioned was this massive fire that just completely burned up the city of Smyrna in 1922. Mm -hmm. So the same chain of events that led to that happening, which was with the Ottomans and the Ottomans losing power and um, lots of events that happened because of the First World War. There were several cities in a row that were burned kind of it makes me think of in the Civil War um, when Sherman kind of just burned a path to the sea. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that. Like several cities in a row got just completely destroyed, purposely set on fire during this kind of period of upheaval after the Ottoman Empire fell. Um, and Philadelphia was one that was also burned to the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and about 3,000 people in the city died. It wasn't quite as catastrophic as in Smyrna, but um, so it's been through a lot of trauma and um, very little of the ancient city exists to this day because of the frequency of earthquakes and the fire and things like that. There are some columns from an ancient church, which is interesting, but there are things left over from a church of all things. Well, um, I mean, there are layers of history, no doubt. Right. But, yeah. Um, but, and and then the other thing I thought was pretty cool, because, like, some of the other cities that we've talked about, um, it's kind of hard to imagine them being Christian, but 
Philadelphia was a strong center for the Orthodox Christian Church until like the mid 20th century, which is not that long ago. No. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Like it's, it held on longer than some of the others. Hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking as you were talking about this, this chain of events, it's kind of interesting to think that as John is writing this uh, and these letters would have been carried to those churches because this is one of those remarkable God can only do it things where it speaks to the past, the present and the future all at the same time. And as a present event for those people it's more or less describing what's probably to them uh, you know an an apocalypse that they're living through Uh, but Mm -hmm. an apocalypse really means revelation so anyway what i mean is is that that you know they're every generation has a sequence of events that they could rightly say, boy, if this isn't it, I don't know what more could happen, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a lesson in that for us, too, that, you know, you you always want to be prepared and always assume that, that events are lining up. And uh, certainly the longer time passes and the longer the, ter- the, the Lord tarries, as the people like to say, well, the closer it becomes to the real thing. But but anyway, I just think it's interesting because what you've described is kind of, in effect, each of those places did experience an end of time kind of event. I mean, how many places in America can you point to cities that once existed that are wiped out and never returned to? There are a few. I think of Centennial, Pennsylvania, for example, um, you know, which is a uh, or Centralia, Pennsylvania, excuse me. <laughs> I guess I was thinking of a book. Uh, <laughs> Centralia, Pennsylvania is a town that lived that, that existed over coal mines. And those coal mines uh, caught fire many, many years ago. And they just the fires are still burning even yeah. to this day. And so this town's been completely abandoned. Um, and, you know, so it does happen in this modern age. But it, it's really kind of amazing when you think about it, that that all of these churches did suffer in, in mm-hmm. some way or another exactly what was said. So I, I find that interesting. So I do too. Anything else about that? Um, no, that's pretty much all I got on Philadelphia. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at the passage then. Let's see. Is it my turn to read? I think Yeah, it is. I'll let you read it. All right. Uh, so this is the... Uh, to the the church letter to the church of philadelphia verse 7 chapter 3 verse 7 begins to the angel of the church in philadelphia write these are the words of him who is holy and true who holds the key of david what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open i know your deeds see i have placed before you an open door that no one can shut I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have 
so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. Well, so what are some of the first things we notice in this passage? Um, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that I think the first thing that really stands out is that they don't get any kind of knock whatsoever. There you go. There was one other church that didn't get any uh, mm -hmm. critics uh, criticism. They, they were commended, but they were not criticized. Yeah. So this is one of the two. And, and you know what I think is kind of cool is that I said that there's that 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 there's this highway that connects those two. I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And you know, in a very practical sense, um, you know, I because I keep to uh, I keep trying to make sure that in and not just in this Bible study, but in all of my uh, teaching and preaching and stuff, I always try to bring it to do you know into a contemporary context. I mean. Once you find that there are other people in other communities or just other churches in town, uh, it's one reason that I always invest in relationships with other clergy. You know, when you find like-minded people and spirit-led people, you know, you stay in touch with them. You, you mm -hmm. connect. Um, there should be a nice, healthy network of, of you know, authentic Christianity that is spirit-driven and it almost sounds like you've just described that, you know. So, so there's a highway between these two churches, and wouldn't you know, these two churches are pretty strong because they're connected. Yeah, it, it would seem. So, mm -hmm. well, yeah. So Jesus opens with this description of himself. He says he is holy. Um, the word holy is used so much in church and and in. Uh, uh, and in the Bible that we tend to forget, it's really radical significance. Uh, I, I remember the first time I went to an Episcopal church. It happened to be in Chicago, and uh, I guess they can import their Anglican priests from England, you know. And I sat there <laughs> in church, and every time this guy said holy, he said, holy. And I just, I just thought, okay, you know. In, in the Anglican church or the Episcopal church, it ain't holy, it's holy. I wish I could think of what that is making me think of. It's making me think of some, like, I don't know. I don't, I'm afraid the only thing that comes to my mind is, you know, the Princess Bride. Mowage. Well, okay, see, I was I was thinking it's got to be like a Princess Bride or a Holy Grail. Like, it's got to be one of those, but I couldn't think of which one. So, uh, but he uses the word holy to describe himself, and... That's interesting because he has been described as holy from the announcement of his birth right up to his death and in his resurrection and his present existence. He's always known as holy. And the word holy is a word that should best be understood as perfect righteousness. Um, it, you know, when we talk about God being perfect, you know, what does that really mean? Um, John Wesley does a really good job of helping us understand that that uh, if a person could achieve perfection, it would only be possible to achieve Christian perfection. That is, 
having the perfect love of Christ in you. So the idea is, is that we can't always do the right thing. You know, I'm imperfect in a variety of ways, but I can conceive of perfect love. And so the word we use to describe God or Jesus in this case is holy because it describes the absolutely uncorrupted, completely clean and perfect love of God. And so Jesus is describing now himself as the holy one, you know, um, it's not vain to say it, or as Reggie Jackson once said back in the 70s, it ain't bragging if you can do it. Actually, I think maybe, I think Babe Ruth might have said that, and Reggie Jackson quoted him. Anyway, sounds like a Babe Ruth kind of thing. You know, and, and I don't know, that sounds kind of vain, but I think in Jesus's case, he's just saying this is a fact. Maybe that's why he says, I'm holy and true. And when he says true, what it really means in this word, he's using a word called uh, alethinos, I can't say this, alethinos, alethinos. Uh, it's a word that means real or genuine, you know, the, the real deal, the pure f- thing, the actual perfect thing, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I might be beating that thing to death, but the point is, is that Jesus is giving all the justification Jesus will ever have to give. He is holy and true. And he holds the key, the key of David. Now, what in the world does he mean when he says the key of David? Well, I looked it up because my Bible had a footnote to another verse. I was hoping you'd have a great answer for that. <laughs> I don't know if that's a great answer. I just, I somebody trained me to use my Bible. <laughs> well, thank God for small and wonderful things. So what'd you get? <laughs> so my Bible footnote takes me to Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two. And it says, I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Ah, and what does Jesus say in that line that he uh, is quoting, basically? David, the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut. So he's basically saying, I'm it. I have the key. I have, and... and, uh, my commentary says this means that he says he has full administrative authority you know he has the authority to command all of the very events that are going into motion here um and it it's uh it's kind of like you know we're getting past the days of keys like the kind that jangle on a chain but uh you know Uh, People who have a ring full of keys have access to everything, and it's a great position of trust. And, you know, so it could also mean that. But it's really interesting because my commentary also mentions that this is the same phrase that Jesus used when Peter said the most beautiful words, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, Jesus said, you know, that's... That makes you the rock on which the church will be built. And what he means by that is not that Peter is the rock, but that pro, that uh, proclamation is the rock on which the church is built. When you understand that Jesus is the key, that he's the foundation, the true and holy 
foundation, then you understand that by accepting that truth, that's the key to the kingdom, you know. And that's why Jesus said to Peter, now you've got the keys to the kingdom. So how do you get into the doors that only Jesus can open and shut? By confessing him as the holy and true God, uh, man, Messiah, you know. I, I, I think it's really cool. I do too. Also, um, for whatever reason, when you said the thing about Peter being the rock, which I've heard plenty of times before, but I was definitely just picturing Peter being the rock, like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, the rock. <laughs> which I think would actually be hilarious and awesome. Well, you know, I could see it happening. It sounds like another kind of Mel Brooks movie, you know, to me. Oh my gosh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> but but you know, to and and I I like the humor, I really do. But but I, <laughs> I do want to emphasize though that this is a this is an important distinction that separates a lot of protestants from a lot of roman catholics and that is that their belief is that jesus is saying peter is the rock but but there's every reason to think and 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 if you look at old you know or more uh authentic uh dated manuscripts in other words we don't have the original texts but we have early texts and there's reason to believe that Jesus may very well have been gesturing to himself as he's telling Peter this. See, now that you get it, Peter, you have the key. You've locked it in. You are the rock. Your knowledge is the rock. Your understanding of who I am is the rock upon which the church is built. Um, that doesn't really single Peter out as a particularly singular, you know, like first pope, let's say. I'm not trying to argue against Catholics here. That's not my point. It's simply to say that it would be easier for all Christians to embrace what Peter said if they didn't have to think that only a guy like Peter could say it. You know, Jesus is saying, look, if you can figure this out, anybody can. And that's the secret. That's the key. Well, and I think like not taking anything away from people who like, okay, backing up. Jesus definitely spoke literally many times, but I think when you go through and look at the different things, the way he chose to explain and describe things throughout his ministry career. Yes. He speaks in metaphors a lot. Yes. So I guess like for me, I'm thinking, that it's kind of weird to just assume that that's the thing he's saying literally when he very often uses metaphors and illustrations to explain things. Yeah. I mean, if you were like thinking in terms of a stone foundation, a cornerstone, um, Peter's cornerstone statement is that because he's the guy who said it first. He's the first one recorded in the Bible who declares Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it Jesus is saying, there you go. And it's from that that singular declaration from that point on the church is born, you know. So yeah. you could argue people will say this Sunday when we celebrate Pentecost they'll say, well, okay, so Pentecost is when the church was born. Not really. You know, the church was born when Jesus was born. Uh, the church was was sort of launched when Peter made his declaration. And Jesus said, okay, now we're on our way. You know, now it's happening. You know, 
but like lots of things, when they're born, they're small and insignificant, and then they begin to grow in significance. And you could almost say that at Pentecost is when the church kind of uh, came into its its adulthood. You know, it's it's almost like Pentecost was the church's bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, you know. I mean, that's a stretch, I guess, but it's just a way of saying, you know, uh, we don't want to get caught up in semantics, but, but you know, the church started when Peter said, I get it. You're the foundation. You are the cornerstone. You are the key to God's plan. And Jesus says, you're right. And because you understand that, you've just started the church into motion. You know, mm-hmm. that's the way I interpret it anyway. Yeah. As Mike Rowe would say, that's the way I heard it. Yes. So, well, let's look at the text again then. Um, Jesus says, I know your works. See, I love that. It's almost like he's showing them. I can't, I don't know about you because, you know, we've been describing this as Jesus's report cards for the churches. And Jesus says, I know your works. And I can almost picture him turning his little notepad around and saying, see, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've got it right here. I've been paying attention and I see. Well, we're, do, we're doing NWEA testing right now, which is like our benchmark testing to see if kids have gotten the growth they need from beginning to end of year. Uh-huh. And what a lot of teachers will do is they'll pull the kids over and, and it's totally like this is awesome because it gives the kids something to work for. But they'll say, OK, this is where you were at mid-year. This is where you need to be. But if you get over this, then you're like, you're going above and beyond. And I'm picturing Jesus going, oh, my gosh, you went so much higher than you were supposed to. Like, sure, sure. Like, way to go. <laughs> and and specifically, what does he like about what they've done? He says, even though you've been of little strength, I'm not sure what that means. But my guess is, is that, you know, this is that little country church that people pass by and they don't notice anymore. You know, it's quaint. Mm-hmm. They don't pay much attention to it. It's that little church out there. And it turns out that even though there's bigger churches around with bigger budgets, I mean, what do we just read about the last church? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, when we compared them to sort of modern equivalents, we decided that the previous church, Sardis, was like the big, wealthy, well-to-do church. And they really put on a great performance, but in their hearts, they were dead. Then he comes around to Philadelphia and he says, hey, little Philadelphia, guess what, guys? I've been watching and I know you think you're small and I know you're thinking that you can't afford all the fancy stuff that the big church up the road in the city has. But despite your smallness, despite your small uh, stature, you kept my word. And you didn't give in to the pressure. And this is, uh, this is a temptation that you have resisted. And this is commendable, you know. Um, that's really cool. I mean, because you can, you, you can take that image a lot of ways. But, you know, sometimes it, when you're little, it's easy to, to uh, give in to pressure. And, uh, you know, you, you got you to be kind of, I don't know, I think there's something about his letter to the Church of Philadelphia that just kind of warms my heart. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, you know, he says, you haven't denied my name. 
um, again, I think it's important and probably not an accident that Jesus contrasts Sardis with Philadelphia. You know, um, they they use his name, but they don't acknowledge it. You know, they don't acknowledge him. Isn't it interesting that after Sardis, he introduces himself as the true holy one, the one with the keys. And he uses the same phrase of declaration that Peter used and the phrase that Peter, I should say not that Peter used, but the phrase that he used about Peter. So in effect, he's saying, you know, there was this church that was kind of, of you know, fancy and well-to-do in a prosperous community, a prosperous church, and they were dead inside. Oh, that was weird. And it's like, it was like technology burped or something. Uh, so anyway, uh, but anyway, then he comes to this little church and the first thing he says is, I am the holy one, the true and holy one who holds the keys to everything. And you guys, man, you have aced it. You haven't given in. You've held fast. I mean, it's just a beautiful commendation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he says that they've acquired things that no one can take away from them. Can you hear all the contrast between them and Sardis? Oh, Sardis yeah. has got all this stuff. They're wealthy. They're well off. And all that can be taken away. And yeah. then he comes to the little country church that, you know, basically makes enough money to pay a part-time preacher and pay its uh, heating bill in the summer, in the winter. You know, I mean, they we're talking about a contrast here um, that comes down to you know, Jesus comparing them and saying, look, you guys have been faithful and true, and the things that you have stored up can never be taken away. So I, I just really, really dig that. And he tells them to hold fast, you know, yeah. which is kind of interesting because that's, that's more of a nautical term, you know, holding fast. Uh, make fast means tie something down. Uh, you know, literally in stormy seas, sailors would tie themselves to the ship so they didn't get washed overboard. Um, you know, there's, uh, is it Farragut that was uh, the world, the Civil War uh, admiral who got seasick really bad and he literally had his men tie him to the mast so that he could continue to command. And so, He's, he's tied to the mast so that he won't fall over from seasickness, and he's commanding his crew, and they're, uh, they're moving into enemy territory. I think they were headed towards Vicksburg or something, uh, and uh, torpedoes were uh, not the kind that you shoot out of a submarine, but they were basically mines, the waterborne mines. And mm -hmm. so Farragut was famous for saying, while tied to the mast to help him fight seasickness, he says to his men, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, you know. It's a famous, <laughs> it's a famous saying, you know, but he's made himself fast. He's tied himself to the mast to overcome his sickness, to overcome the risk. And then he says to his men, full speed ahead. I mean, I, it's a great story. I'm just, I'm trusting you on that one because that's not really my area of history confidence. Well, there's somebody out there that probably knows better than me will say, well, you almost had it right, you know. I mean, I like Civil War history. I I'm just pretty don't. sure it's Farragut. But anyway, yeah, so uh, that's pretty cool. And there's a there's a, a, a starship in Star Trek that's named the Farragut. Yes, it is. Um, 
I think among among Navy people, he's a celebrated character because he's just courage. His courage is ah, because of his courage, he is a he guy. Is. You know, uh, and I don't know. I think there's something ironic about a seasick admiral. You know, the, yeah, a little bit. Like if you if you get seasick easily, you might not want a career in the Navy. You know, but hey, that's pretty awesome that he did anyway. <laughs> I can't stand the water, but I love the Navy. Okay, no. <laughs> Seasickness is, a, is subjective, I think, sometimes, but but it's really yeah. it's pretty amazing to think about that. But but I don't want to get too far off on that. It's just I it's that term may, hold fast. I mean, Jesus literally means it's going to get rough, little Philadelphia, and you have all the strength you need. Just tie yourself down and ride this out, you know. Mm-hmm. And and that's a great lesson for all believers, I think, is that, that there are plenty of times when he doesn't say, yeah, I'm going to spare you from this trouble, but ride it out until. And yet Jesus says in the church uh, to the letter that the letter to the church of Philadelphia, he says, you know, you hang on. But he also says, uh, you know, I'm not going to let you suffer indefinitely. I'm going to take you out of this. Um, there is an allusion there to what some people would call the rapture. Mm-hmm. Um, there is reason to believe, and it will become more clear. We're going to, you know, when we finish with these letters, we're going to start getting into some cool stuff that people always want to know about. Like, yes. Like the harpazo, which is the word for the rapture or the, the take the stealing away. Uh, but, you know, he says, endure it patiently, hold fast, and I will keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the earth. And and so he's promising them difficulty that's severe enough they're going to have to tie themselves down, so to speak, and hang on. But he's also promising them that before it gets impossible to survive, he's going to take them out. Well, and I guess I find this interesting because I told you I think I kind of have a very big soft spot for Smyrna, too. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because when he's talking to Smyrna, he tells them you're, that they're going to suffer, and he even specifies how long they're going to suffer. Yes. But yeah. with Philadelphia, he says, I'm going to whisk you away from the bad stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, like I, I don't know where I'm going with that. I just think it's interesting because Smyrna is also doing a really, really great job. But he says you are going to suffer. Well, and I'll tell you where you're going with it in a way, uh, because as we go ahead in these chapters, you're going to see the throne room of God, and you're going to see an image of the saints who have died from persecution, uh, yeah. who will yeah. be under the altar, yeah. which could be Smyrna. But you're also going to see people there who have been taken away before the seals are opened. So I'm, you know, I'm giving people a little preview. If you have never read the book yet, you won't know what I'm talking about, but that's okay. If you're taking this at the same speed we're delivering it, then just trust me. It's going to get really interesting soon because we're going to see something that ought to really give you pause and make you think about when... Jesus plans to take people out before it becomes really bad. And mm-hmm. one key is that the really bad doesn't start until he starts popping the seals on the document or the scroll that is given to him to open. Yeah, I'm hoping to be 
Yeah. I guess I guess I just gestured and nobody can see it. I'm hoping to not be here when that part happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, going to the throne room or something like that, you know. You know, every time I hit the send button on my email, it makes a sort of swoosh sound, right? <laughs> I kind of hope it's like that, right? Just swoosh. Yeah. yeah. But so, so again, the letter's not terribly long, and we've probably come about as far as we will today for this. But, but look at that. You know, he says, I'll write them. I'm going to write their name and my name on them. Like, you know, um, I don't really like this analogy, but, you know, when we put a tag on our dog and it says this is Earl and he belongs to the Sinkhorns and here's their address, that's kind of like what I'm hearing here, you know. This is my servant, Dan. This is my servant, Bethany. They're mine. Yeah. You know, if found, return to God. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I really love that where he's like, I'm going to make those guys like the the synagogue of Satan or whatever, where he's like, I'm going to make them fall. And then I'm going to make them acknowledge how much I love you. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Like, yep. I'm not just going to tell them I love you. I'm going to make them tell everybody that I love you. And I, but, I uh, and, you know, of course, the last verse says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. You know, whenever Chuck Missler does his live presentation, he always says on this particular one, he always says, now, will everyone who has at least one ear, please raise your hand. <laughs> and he says, if you don't, you didn't hear me ask. So <laughs> this must be about you. <laughs> you know, uh -huh. and I think, yeah, that's right on. You know, I mean, everybody who has ears, well, that would be all of us. And so one thing, one thing that I really like, because this is just how my brain works, is that he says that he's going to make them a pillar in the temple of his God. Yeah. Because I talked at the beginning about the earthquakes and stuff. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, this is, a, this is a city that is unstable, like literally the ground beneath it is unstable. And he's saying, I'm going to make you a pillar that's not going to move. Oh, that's beautiful. That's, and, that's really good. Well... Thanks, I guess. Um, That's what you're here for. And, well, and the other thing that I think is really, really cool is that I said, like, the only archaeological remains that are left are some parts of an ancient church. <laughs> and guess what the parts are? That's really good, Bethany. Roman columns, that Papa. Is, that is really good. And you know... I just think that that's kind of amazing. It really is. And, and I think you've done a beautiful job of bringing us around to full circle so that we can go ahead and call it quits here <laughs> because as i look at the timer i see that we just have a few minutes i know people gave us permission to go longer than we originally imagined but i'm still trying to keep it right at an hour if only because it's an it's a discipline that's just kind of fun it's a challenge you know but uh well thank you for a beautiful full circle closure of the topic i think you did a beautiful job there of tying all the bend uh, loose ends up and bringing us back together on this uh, beautiful next week the infamous laodicea oh boy everybody do your homework on this one because this has got to be one of the most abused references in mm -hmm. my at least in my experience i am so <laughs> tired of the way people abuse these uh this letter in order to mock Christians they don't agree with. 
I yes. will never, ever be able to accept. I, that's not coming out the way I mean it. It really irks me when Christians spend pulpit time, especially criticizing other Christians. I just, I can't stand that. We've got better things to do than than criticize other Christians. Well, you know. and you probably won't agree with this part, but it bugs me that they pick that one line because we've talked about how beautifully written this book is, and there's a lot better slams in there than that one. <laughs> that's really good. You're right. You're right. That so so that's that's not only is that a, a rotten on certain levels, but it's just it's lazy. Yes, it is. You know, I speed out of my mouth. How many times have I heard that? Ugh. And we're going to find out that's really kind of an idiom for Laodicea that that Jesus didn't even mean it the way that people use and abuse it. So that's going to be fun. So there's mm-hmm. a tease for next week, folks. If you want to know what Jesus meant when he said, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just lukewarm, we're going to find out. So uh, thank you, Bethany, again, as always. And uh, if my calculations are correct, um, if you're not live in the studio here you know somebody asked me last week they said so i gotta know what's what's the ghm studio look like and i said a (laughs) corner in my basement (laughs) and and sure enough i've done that thing that radio broadcasters have done since radio was invented i've created an image or an illusion you know i love it live from ghm studios in beautiful pastor dan's basement (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) right across from pastor dan's wife's craft table (laughs) (laughs) you know i love it but better you think of this incredible studio um but uh, i do like the fact that we can present a studio quality so anyway bethany i hope you're in the studio with me when we record next but either way i will see you again next week for this and you know chances are you and i'll talk sooner So (laughs) tell everybody bye. Bye. Bye, Bethany. We love you. Well, that is going to wrap it up for another episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the Revelation Bible Study, Episode 9. It was recorded on Friday, May the 18th. And uh, that is in the year 2018. So we thank you for listening and hope you've been blessed. Please join the conversation. Don't forget to visit us in the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group. It's uh, linked in the description here in this podcast. And you can learn more about Shiloh United Methodist Church at shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H um.org and uh, we can connect with you in a variety of ways so just reach out because we really want to hear from you it blesses us so much but for now i want to thank you again for listening come see us if you're in jasper god bless you goodbye